Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a, a regular exposition through the Gospel of John, a little over a year and a half now, and, and here we're drawing uh, to the final sermons in this Gospel. I come this morning to John 20, verses 24 through 29. The Lord Jesus has died. He was buried toward the end of chapter 19, and at the beginning of chapter 20, He rose from the dead. John and Peter saw the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene saw the Lord Himself and reported that news back to the disciples. And then the risen Lord appeared to a gathering of His disciples in a room behind locked doors. And most of them were there. We know at least Thomas was not there. And so we pick up this morning, John 20, reading verses 24 through 29. Please follow along as I read. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. So this is over a week after that first Sunday when Jesus had risen. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the event in the life of Thomas that has gained for him across the centuries the label, Doubting Thomas. Now, I'll argue this morning that that's rather an unfair label. I say that first of all because I don't think there's anything all that unusual about Thomas's doubts in this passage. Moreover, Thomas appears in other places in the New Testament in rather heroic colors at different points. So it seems at least uncharitable, if not downright inaccurate, to view Thomas as the quintessential doubter. Uh, I hope you'll be persuaded this morning that Thomas is worthy of reappraisal as a disciple. But far more importantly than just developing a more charitable perspective on Thomas, far more importantly, I want us this morning to hear Thomas's witness and to appreciate what it is he's telling us in this passage, or what John is telling us through Thomas, or what the Holy Spirit is telling us through John, through Thomas in this passage. Uh, preachers, uh, if, if they're doing th their job uh, well, uh, study often throughout the week. They read commentaries, they listen to sermons, they, they read books. As a young preacher, I do a lot of that, and, and I'm very much aware that nothing I say is original, that it's just sort of the, the repackaging of a lot of things I've heard before in, in good preaching. 
and I'm just not aware of where I get things most times. But I just want to acknowledge at the outset of this sermon that I'm very aware of an indebtedness I owe to D.A. Carson, who has helped me understand this text through his commentaries and his sermons, and indeed even in the formation of my outline this morning. just want to acknowledge that debt to Dr. Carson. Three points this morning in the opening up of this text. Number one, the doubts of a disappointed skeptic. The doubts of a disappointed skeptic. Thomas being the disappointed skeptic. Now, who was Thomas? You may say, I don't know much about Thomas other than this passage. Well, he's not like all over the New Testament, but he is mentioned in other places. Thomas was the Lord's disciple. He's mentioned in each of the gospel accounts and also the book of Acts as one of the original band of those who had left all and followed Jesus. Uh, Moreover, in John's gospel, he appears in a few places. Uh, He certainly would have been with those disciples in John 2. Remember where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana? And it says there he did this to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Thomas was there at the wedding. He had seen this miracle, and he put his faith in Jesus. He believed in him. He would have been there in John 5, for example, where where Jesus heals a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Thomas would have witnessed that miracle. He would have witnessed the miracle in John 9 when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. He would have been there in John 6. Uh, Remember when Peter stands up as the representative for the group, but expressing the faith of the entire group, he says, Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Thomas apparently had come to a place at some point in Jesus' ministry where he believed this was indeed the Christ. This was indeed the Messiah. This is the Son of David. This is the Lord's anointed, the Holy One of God. Thomas was sure of it. So much so that he staked all of his life on it because he was sure that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Remember in John 11, uh, that's the account of Jesus raising Lazarus. Of course, he does it at the very end of the chapter. But at the beginning of the chapter, there's some question as to whether Jesus will come uh, out to Judea and if he will visit Lazarus or not. And he waits till Lazarus dies. And that, of course, uh, introduces great grief to Mary and to Martha. And, and, And you might remember the last time Jesus had been in Judea, they had threatened to stone him because he had said, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews had threatened to stone him, and the disciples tried to dissuade Jesus now from going down to visit the tomb of Lazarus. They say, don't do it. Remember, last time you were there, they tried to stone you. But Jesus will not be dissuaded. And once the disciples realize this, it's actually Thomas who stands up and says in John 11, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. Apparently, Thomas was willing to be martyred for and alongside with the Lord Jesus. His attachment to Jesus was such, he was all in. He had given the blank check over to Jesus. And if following him and identifying with him meant that he was going to lose his life, then so be it. I'm with Jesus. I have come to believe he's the Holy One of God. Let us also die with him. This isn't the uh, sort of gutless, spineless uh, doubter we so often think of. There are traces of valor, chivalry, and heroism, great courage in Thomas. He's ready to die for and alongside with the Lord. 
It was also Thomas in John 14 in the upper room, which would have been maybe 11 or 12 days prior to the events in our text this morning. There in the upper room, it was Thomas who had said to the Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? That sets up Jesus to give those very well-known words from John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How, how important are those words? Those words were addressed from Jesus to Thomas, to the gathered disciples there. Surely Thomas believed Jesus was the way to the Father. Truly he believed that life was found only in him. So for his part, Thomas's whole life is bound up in Jesus. And then Jesus is betrayed, and he's taken into custody, and he's beaten and brutalized and finally crucified. Now what for Thomas? Well, all his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his expectations are destroyed. His faith, his very life that he had entrusted to Jesus is now crushed. And you can imagine Thomas in these moments, these days, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Holy One sent from God. I, I thought he was David's greater son and that he was going to reign forever. And he was finally going to liberate us and establish rule throughout the world. I thought I could trust his promises. I believed I, I could trust in, in his word. Turns out it was all a sham. It was all just a farce. And, and Thomas is stuck picking up the broken pieces of a life wasted following what looks like a fraud. Uh, he, he was just one of those pathetic fools caught up in the Jesus cult. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said now many years later after these events in 1 Corinthians 15? He said that if Christ is not risen, uh, you are still in your sins, uh, you're of all men most to be pitied, and your faith is futile. That's where Thomas is on Good Friday. Dead in his sins, futile faith, trusting in a fraud, the most pitiable man in the world. It's still worse because Thomas had completely given himself over to Jesus. It would be bad enough if he was kind of on the outskirts of the movement. Like, I, I, I went down to see him. I liked a lot of the platform he was conveying, but I didn't buy into everything. I kind of stood on, on the outskirts. But Thomas was all in. He was at the very core of the Jesus movement. He had given his life to be one of his followers. Jesus had been everything to Thomas. I wonder, have you ever been disappointed by someone you completely and totally trusted? Have you had that experience? I'm not talking, I mean, disappointment is kind of a, maybe too shallow of a word. I don't mean like they stood you up for lunch or forgot it was your birthday or something like that. I mean sorely lied to you, cruelly abandoned you or, or abused you, someone that you had totally trusted. Do you know anything of the sort of emotional and psychological trauma such disappointment can produce? If you've had such an experience or know someone who's had such an experience, you might know something of what Thomas was going through in these days. 
But remember, the stakes for Thomas are not of mere temporal duration. The implications for Thomas are eternal and cosmic. How great was the fall for Thomas? I mean, his expectations and his hopes could not have been riding higher. How great was the plunge after Jesus was taken into custody and crucified? All of his hopes for eternal life forever through Jesus are completely shattered. Then Easter Sunday arrives, and the reports start coming in. One woman here, a couple of women there, Peter and John seen uh, the empty tomb, the two on the road to Emmaus, uh, the disciples in the upper room eight days prior to the events in our text. The reports are coming in that perhaps Jesus is indeed risen. Well, verse 24 of our passage, we read, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He wasn't there, verses 19 through 23. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now what kind of doubt is that? It's not the doubt of a philosophical materialist, someone who just believes all we have is matter, space, and time. It's impossible to imagine Thomas would have had that perspective. I just, I can only believe that which I touch. Thomas was, of course, an Orthodox Jew. He believed in a creator God who had made all things. He believed in right and wrong and moral absolutes. If I could be a little anachronistic, he believed in what we might call the supernatural. He's not a philosophical materialist. Nor is this the doubt of of a a wishy-washy sort of doubter, someone with an unusually broken or fragile psyche. It's not that Thomas was just such a weakling, such a wimp. You know, you really have to coddle Thomas. Got to go over the top for that brother. Just so weak. He's just born to struggle. That's, that's Thomas, quintessential doubter. Now, I can't believe that about Thomas. This is a man who is ready to die out of allegiance for the Lord. Now, his doubt, I think, is the product of the deepest kind of religious disappointment the most profound kind of religious, spiritual disappointment. He had believed that Jesus was the Christ. He had believed He was the Son sent from the Father. He had believed that He was David's greater Son who would reign on His Father's throne forever. But His faith and all those things had been demolished. His doubt rises from bitter experience. The bitter experience of someone who had been burned. It's not unlike the doubt of the woman who has had four miscarriages and just can't bring herself to believe she'll ever hold one of her babies alive in her arms. See John 16, 21. It's very much like the doubt of the aging foster child who has gone from house to house and has grown accustomed to the fact that he will always be an orphan and will never have a real family or a home to call his own. See John 14, verse 18. Look, I'll believe it when I see it. I know there's a baby on that ultrasound, but I'm not going to believe I'll ever hold that baby. I've just been burned too much. Another house, another smiling couple, but this isn't going to ever be home to me. I'm not going to allow myself 
to trust. It's a telltale sign of people who feel they've been severely manipulated or lied to or abandoned, that they don't trust very easily. And some never trust again. They wrap their hearts up in skepticism and in cynicism, and for good reason. It's just too painful to trust again. So I suspect what Thomas thought when he first heard the stories of the resurrection was something like, you guys just can't, can't give up on this, can you? You're just believing what you want to believe. Face it, it's over. It's all done, party's over. He's not coming back. You got the, look, the sooner you can, can put this to bed and move on from Jesus, the sooner you can start putting your lives back together. I, for one, have already begun that process. You just got to get over it and get a grip, guys. You've seen him risen, and you think I should believe you. Okay, I'll tell you what. Here's the evidence I would require in order to believe. I want convincing, compelling proof that the same body that went into the tomb is the same body that came out. I want to put my hands in the wounds. I don't want to just see them. I want to touch them. I don't want some twin to appear all of a sudden. I don't want someone who just looks a whole lot like Jesus to show up. I want to know that the same one who was crucified and died is the same one who's standing before me. And if I do that, well, fine, I'll believe. This is a man who insists on having faith that's based on truth. And this might fly in the face of what you've heard about this passage, but I do not think Thomas is being unreasonable. After all, he's only asking, right, for the very thing the other disciples got. They got to see him. John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus showed them his wounds. This is not an outlandish request from Thomas. If Christ is risen, if he's out there walking around, I want to see him and I want to touch him. Thomas says he will have faith based on truth or he will have no faith at all. You realize there's a difference between faith and gullibility, right? People who just believe whatever they're told. Thomas is not gullible. He wants to have faith based on knowledge, faith based on truth. And unless I have real evidence for the resurrection, he says, I'm not going to believe. The doubts of a disappointed skeptic. Now consider with me, secondly, the confession of a converted skeptic. The confession of a converted skeptic. Look with me at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same exact scene as the one eight days prior. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now notice something about how Jesus approaches Thomas here. There is no evidence in the text that Jesus is offended by Thomas's insistence on seeing evidence. In fact, every indication is that Jesus cheerfully complies with Thomas's request. He does not deride Thomas. He does not belittle Thomas. Rather, he actually invites Thomas to see and to touch and to have exactly what he wanted. I think what he needed. He says to them again, peace be with you. I'm not angry, Thomas. 
Peace be with you, brother. I've heard that you would like to see my wounds. Here they are. And I heard you wanted to touch them. Come, come here, Thomas. Here, touch, touch my hands. Thomas, give me your hand and feel my side. I was in an accident uh, about three years ago. I was very fortunate in God's kindness to come away with my life. Just walked out of it with what they call a traumatic pneumothorax. It's a collapsed lung. And I went to the hospital, and they have to insert a chest tube. Make an incision, insert the chest tube. They got to suck out this air bubble that's emerged over your lung, and it reinflates your lung in the hospitals for a couple nights. They take out the chest tube, and that's that. Now, I walked out of that with a mighty scar right here. Right along here, it protrudes a few inches long. And I could say, if John Beale wanted, I could say, John, you want to see my scar? And I could pull up my shirt, and I could take John's hand. John's turning white now, because <laughs> I'm teasing. But I could take his hand, and I could put it over the scar, and I could say, if you feel that, John, that's, that's, where, that's where they cut me open, and that's where they put the chest tube. That's the incision. That's the mark of the wound. I think that's something of what we're to imagine here in this text. Think about this. Jesus is standing before Thomas. He takes Thomas by the hand and he guides it to the wound in his side, which probably would have been a little lower, would have been probably below his rib cage. He guides his hand to that spot and Jesus has his hand over Thomas's hand and he's feeling the wound. And at this point, Thomas's face is maybe 12 inches from the Lord's. And what does the Lord say to him? He doesn't say, you weak little man. He says, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Can you imagine this? Thomas, trust in me. Believe on me. Don't go on doubting. Believe in me. Thomas then says something that I think is quite surprising. In verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, why is that so surprising? Isn't that really a little much? A little more than what the evidence demands? This, this amounts to the highest profession in the gospel thus far. No one has looked at Jesus in this way and called him my God. But Thomas does. Isn't it just a little more than the evidence Demands. After all, this is not the first man that Thomas has seen risen from the dead. He at least saw Lazarus. There had been rumors of other resurrection accounts in those days, and yet none of those who allegedly rose from the dead became the objects of worship. Certainly weren't called God. Is it really legitimate for Thomas to ascribe this to Jesus? Could he not have just said, wow, it really is you, or boy was I wrong, or something like that. On first reading, it seems like a little much. But if we read this confession from Thomas in the context of John's entire gospel, of what John has been telling us about Jesus, doesn't it make perfect sense? See, see Thomas would have been present in John 8. Remember John 8? 
Uh, There, Jesus is dialoguing with the Jews, and in verse 58, he tells them, before Abraham was, I am. He takes to himself that name that was reserved only for God, and he's charged with blasphemy because the Jews there understand that he is claiming to be God himself. Remember, it was God who said to Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. It's a covenant name for God, and Jesus took it to his lips, and, and Thomas witnessed this. Thomas would have been there in John 5. Uh, where, where Jesus, after he healed a man on the Sabbath, said, my father is working until now, and I am working also, claiming the Sabbath exemption for himself, the Sabbath exemption that belonged only to God. And it says at that point, the Jews plotted to kill him. Why? Because he, being a man, made himself equal with God. Thomas was there. He would have been there in John 10 when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Would have been there in John 14, verse 9. Would have heard his mate Philip ask the Lord to show him the Father. What did Jesus say? Anyone who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. Now, we're some days, nearly two weeks after that statement from Jesus, and some years out from those other statements I referenced, And Thomas is starting to wonder, can I take those sayings from Jesus at face value? Can I believe his word? Could he be telling the truth? All these things have to be integrated in light of the resurrection, right? What's more, Thomas probably had been spending time with the other disciples. You remember when Peter and John went to the tomb, John walks in, the man we believe is John, he walks in, he sees the empty tomb, and it says he believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that the Christ must rise from the dead. And they went back to their homes, it says. And I think we're to imagine they began to appreciate and understand, hold on, wait a minute, the Christ is going to come, he's going to die, he's going to rise again. Isn't that what the Scriptures taught? We see it so clearly now. And the disciples are ripping through the Scriptures, looking for passages that show evidence of this sort of a thing. And perhaps Thomas is overhearing it. You could imagine him in the corner, rocking chair of sorts, hands behind his back, feet up. What are you guys doing? He's gone, don't you know? But he overhears them talking. Look, Psalm 16. What does it say? That, that, that you will not let my... You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And they're talking about how, isn't David's tomb down the road? He, he certainly decayed. His soul is in Sheol. Could this be talking about the Christ? Perhaps you overheard them talking about Isaiah 9, a passage we know they were already well aware of, about the son who is born to you. He's going to be given the throne of his, father's, his father David, and of the increase of his government there will be no end, and his name shall be called... Wonderful counselor, mighty God, mighty God. He'd be more than just a man. Thomas is overhearing this, and he's becoming more and more convinced Jesus was who he said he was. All these things are working on Thomas, pressing on Thomas. But of course, what pushes Thomas ultimately to this confession is the presence of the risen Lord standing before him. It's then that we have the most convincing proof, and we have the confession of the converted skeptic, my Lord and my God. It all makes sense. 
D.A. Carson says, the most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. And notice he doesn't say our Lord and our God. It's not a corporate expression or a liturgical expression. This confession is immensely personal. My Lord and my God. It's a statement of personal allegiance, personal faith in a personal God and a personal Savior. It's a personal confession. And it is the point to which every Christian must come. We must continually come and bow before him, crying, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Consider with me thirdly and finally the witness of a former skeptic. We've seen the doubts of the disappointed skeptic, the confession of a converted skeptic. Thirdly and finally, The witness of a former skeptic. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Now, if you're reading in the ESV, there's a question mark there. That question mark is supplied by the translators. It's not there in the original Greek. It's probable that this was just a statement. You have believed because you have seen me. It's probably how we should read it. Then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a way of interpreting this verse with a sort of modern cynicism. It goes like this. Okay, Thomas, you believed in me. Good for you. But that's only because I piled up all the evidence for you. I mean, I really had to go over the top for you. You believe, but it's only because I went all in, pulled out all the stops, showed you everything you needed to see. You know, you're really very needy, you know, Thomas. I'll tell you the truly blessed people are those who will believe on me without evidence. Those who are willing to go out on a limb in their faith. That's the kind of faith that I will bless. In other words, on this interpretation, Jesus is essentially saying, Thomas, you only believe because I piled up the evidence for you. But it's much better to believe without evidence. The kind of belief that is lauded, that is approved, that is affirmed, that is even commended, is belief that is undertaken without evidence. There is zero chance that's what Jesus is saying here. There is no chance Jesus is saying, blessed are those who don't need any evidence but just believe on a lark. A lot of people talk about faith in that way. Faith to them is just personal, subjective, religious commitment. You have your faith, I have my faith. It's really a matter of decision or how you feel. We're not in the realm of science or facts or evidence. We're talking about just your personal subjective feeling or opinion. That faith is believing in something without evidence or with paltry evidence or in some cases even against evidence altogether. What is tragic, and I think profoundly dishonoring to God, is when Christians talk about faith in this way. The Bible never once speaks about faith in that way. Well, when it really doesn't make sense, really don't have any answers, that's what faith is for. That's that going out on a limb, going out on a lark. The Bible never speaks of faith in that way. Faith in the Bible is always formed on the basis of truth. 
You realize this, right? The Bible never asks you to take a gamble or go out on a limb or wish upon a star or something like that. The Bible never calls you to believe something that isn't true. The Bible only ever calls you to put your faith in the truth. Part of faith's validation is the truthfulness of faith's object. It's what validates the faith, that the object of faith is true. It's based on reality and not fiction. And what's more, the emphasis of the New Testament writers seems to be on providing a reliable justification for faith. They emphasize fulfilled scriptures, historic events, eyewitness testimony. John says at the very end of his gospel, in the second to last verse, John 21, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness, or in our language would be, I am the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John is signing the end of the gospel saying, this is all true, I saw this, I'm a witness. John will later speak of it in this way, writing probably at least a few years later in his epistle we call 1 John. Listen to how John speaks in 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, how many senses are we up to? We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, his argument is not, don't worry if anyone saw him or touched him. Don't ask any questions, just believe, 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 as long as you're sincere. Peter speaks in this way in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter argues to his hearers in Acts, look at all the fulfilled prophecies. Look at all the fulfilled scriptures. What is that? Just some sort of Coincidence? Look these things up in the Old Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still with us to this day. Look, we have a directory. We've collected all of their names. Here's their emails, their phone numbers, their addresses. You can go down and visit them, and they'll tell you exactly what we're telling you. It's not just believe, believe, believe. Don't worry about any witnesses. Don't worry about any eyewitness testimony. Don't ask for any evidence. Rather, the disciples, those early witnesses, are appealing to the evidence. The apostles, listen, friends, the same men who wrote the New Testament, they want you to evaluate their testimony. 
They want you to believe the facts. And what's more than that, Paul puts his money where his mouth is. He says, if your faith isn't based on facts, your life is really a joke, isn't it? So Paul says, essentially, in 1 Corinthians 15, you're to be pitied above all others. If you're believing in something without any evidence, without any basis in reality, Paul doesn't commend you for being sincere. He says, if you have faith in something that isn't true, you're damned. You're of all men most to be pitied. No, the New Testament writers want us to believe not in spite of the facts, but in light of the facts. And what's more, this is implicit in their argument, to deny the validity of the resurrection, you'd have to make some significant leaps. Start with this, all the witnesses are liars. They're all lying, all 500 of them, the disciples, the women, the many appeared to on the mountain, those who appeared in that room in Acts 1, they're all lying. Those who were willing not only to testify, by the way, but to die for what they saw, they're all lying to you. What's more, you'd have to believe that the fulfillment of the predictive prophecies forms some of the most fantastic coincidences in human history. Furthermore, you'd have to believe that the fact that the Christian movement was born accelerated and expanded in the face of persecution and against impossible odds was merely an astronomically improbable historic anomaly. Furthermore, the inner cohesion of these gospel accounts, the inner cohesion of the Bible, which most historians, by the way, and text-critical scholars would agree, show signs of real genius, would have to be the product of some sort of demented genius. How it all fits together, so many details, so many authors over so much time, it's clearly a work of genius, but it must be some demented genius. You see what you have to do, the sorts of things you must do to get away from the truth, from the veracity of eyewitness testimony. John, Thomas, Paul, Peter, they want you to believe the facts, and they want your faith, my friend, to be formed on the basis of the facts. Now listen, we know that faith is more than just believing the facts, just believing what's true. It's got to be more than that. Satan believes that Jesus rose from the dead. I think Satan can say most of the Apostles' Creed. Got to believe more than the facts. I was talking to a young man this week about this, that faith is more than just believing the facts. That young man knows who he is. This is very much for you. Faith is more than believing the facts. It's entrusting one's heart to Jesus. Faith is the God-given ability to perceive what is true, what is reality, and then to stake everything that we have and everything that we are on the truth. But my friend, faith is not less than believing the facts. It's more, but it's not less. And indeed, according to Scripture, faith begins with hearing or in our case, reading the witnesses. And so with that in mind, I would suggest that what's happening here in our passage is that Thomas is being introduced to us as one of the first witnesses, one of the ones who provides us with eyewitness testimony. He saw the Lord. He put his hands in the wounds, and Jesus says, in essence, Thomas, you've seen me, you've touched me, you've believed in me, blessed are you. 
But listen, Thomas, there's going to come after you a long line of those who will believe having not seen me, but having evaluated the eyewitness testimony. Many will follow who do not have access to the bona fide body of Christ, but they will listen to those who have. You see, Thomas is witnessing to us. This is one who had his doubts. He would not have believed unless he saw that the same body that went into the tomb is the same body that came out. He wanted to put his hands in the wounds, his hands in Jesus' side. And he saw and he believed and he testified. And John is submitting Thomas's witness into the record. He did see, he saw the risen Christ. And he knew indefatigably without any shadow of doubt that this was the Lord, this was God himself. Now listen, none of us here have ever seen the Lord. We've never put our hands in Jesus' side. But friend, Thomas was there. And we have his testimony. He is part of that first generation of witnesses, over 500 of them. We have access to the truth through his witness and others like him. And this is John's next point. If you're looking at the text, I don't want to borrow from Rex who will be preaching verses 30 and 31 next week. But where does, where does John go with this? Why did he record this little episode about Thomas? Verse 29, Jesus said to him, If you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. This account, this sign of Jesus appearing before Thomas, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why am I telling you about this little episode with Thomas? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by faith you would have life in his name. So my friend, it comes down to this. Do you believe Thomas? Do you think John is a liar? Do you believe hundreds of witnesses just made everything up? How do you explain these men going from doubt and fear and dread to just a few days later giving their lives to enduring torture, even to the point of death, to spread this message? How do you explain how claims that could have so easily been falsified if only the evidence existed were never falsified? What's more, how do you explain predictive prophecy from 500, 700, in some cases a thousand years earlier, being fulfilled down to the last details? How do you explain the fact that within a generation you had tens of thousands of Christians all across the empire, in the face of persecution, by the way, the face of being fed to lions? Popular movements don't spread that way. How do you explain that? How do you explain the worldwide Christian movement? What's more, can you find anywhere a more cohesive narrative of the world, of human nature, of sin, of right and wrong, of meaning and purpose, of the transcendent, of beauty, of virtue, of the world as we know it, and that one which is to come? But it all comes back to this, that the same Jesus who died God raised him from the dead. And for all those to whom Jesus reveals himself, who see him by faith, who hear the word and believe, they're blessed. All those who see Christ and cry, 
with Thomas, my Lord and my God. My friend, Jesus is displayed before you this morning. His wounds are here for all to see in the scriptures. We see him in the wounds. We see him in the word. We will see him in a few moments in the sacrament, and I pray each one of you sees him by faith. The eyes of your heart being opened to behold the risen Christ. That you too might cry, my Lord and my God. That you too might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you too may have life in his name. May God bless his word to all of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you've not left us without witness, without testimony. You did not ascend before commissioning your disciples to go out and spread the word of what they saw and what they touched and what they felt and what they heard. Pray, Father, that you would move upon us to put away our sin, put away all that would deceive us and delude us and believe the testimony that's been given. Father, I'm sure there are skeptics here. And I know nothing that I've said this morning will persuade them unless you come and open the eyes of their hearts. Give the gift of faith. And to those who are already your people, fan that faith into flame that we might cry afresh this morning even as we take the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in a few moments. May we recommit ourselves to the Christ who is our Lord and our God. We pray that each one of us would experience that in the most deeply intimate and personal way this morning. Jesus is the Lord of all, and he's the Lord of my heart. He's the God of my life and of the entire world. We pray you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.